All right. Let's go before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come again to hear from you the testimony of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done to make us accepted, to make us righteous before you, to give us title to eternal life and all blessing. We thank you for the access that he has given us by his blood. And we thank you for this hour that you've appointed as your people to go into your word and to learn about these things that we may glory in him and him alone. We thank you for the life that you've given us, even here and now, and the life that we have hidden in him. And we pray that the Lord would come. We await for the revelation of his glory even to us who have been redeemed by his faithfulness. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning, one and all again who joining us. This morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I had gotten greedy and I thought I would be able to work my way from verses 1 to 5. And I discovered that I only was able to go to verse 3. <laughs> only verse 3. And even with that, I'm going to have to layer the messages over the next few weeks to go back and revisit some of the things because it's very difficult to exhaust the understanding. But we'll speak as much as God will give us ability Romans 5, 1 to, I'll just read to verse 5 for context. Apostle Paul recorded for us and said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that is the word of God for our consideration. We have one title for our message. Unfortunately, <laughs> I could have given different titles because there's a whole lot of things to expand. But as an overarching title, we're going to go with benefits of justification. Benefits of justification. From Romans 1 to 4, that is Romans chapters 1 to 4, Apostle Paul has labored the matter of how a sinner is made just or righteous before God. 
and he has illustrated his point through the testimony of Abraham and David and has answered objections against his teaching that sinners like as found among the Jews and even the Gentiles could not be declared righteous before God by anything that they did or are doing or would do having fallen short of the glory of God. He said trying to recommend oneself to God based on the law that is based on your own obedience to the law does not work. Why? Because God never had intention to justify sinners in Adam and bless them by way of their own obedience to the law. It was never in God's mind to do things that way. So forget about that. So any who thought the law was for them to work their righteousness as the Jews thought had a wrong view and a wrong use of the law as many people of our day. We still have a lot of people in our day who have a wrong understanding and a false view of the proper function of the law. But Paul said the law was given to give knowledge of sin. And that is to show men and women their sin as x-rays reveal an infection of the lungs but is never the treatment recommended for pneumonia. You will have to get some treatment that is not the x-rays themselves. The x-rays are only there to reveal, to give you knowledge of your infection. And so that was the function of the law. So as long as men and women stand on their own obedience, even the best among them will always be condemned. Even the best among men and women stand condemned apart from Christ Jesus. Because the law dead ends in condemnation of sinners. The law never dead ends in giving you life because it was never given for that function. So essentially, the Jew and the Gentile are in the same predicament that is, none is or can be justified by their works, by anything that they could do and give to God in exchange for life and righteousness. And thus, if salvation should come, it will be by something found outside of themselves. If salvation should happen to them, if they should enter into God's blessing to any level, it shall be by the work of someone else, by something that is found outside of them. So then, the matter that affects 
all humanity is not that they don't have enough money in the bank. <laughs> it is that they don't have enough righteousness. And that takes us to the subject of justification. In other words, how shall they approach God and be declared as righteous people, as not guilty, as having fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, not to their best effort, but to perfection. Because a lot of people think God is pleased with your best effort. God is only pleased with perfection. Because apart from a perfect obedience to the law, there is no hope for anyone. There can only be a sure facing of God's judgment and wrath. So God has intervened in the history of humanity and introduced what he calls the gospel. God is the one who calls the gospel the gospel. And this gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes unto salvation from all the things that stood against you before God. Only this gospel delivers you from all the things that stand against you before God. And in this gospel lies the only hope for sinners to make it right with God. In other words, in this gospel are sinners justified and reconciled to God and are given title to all the blessing that God would give to those whom he loves. And this gospel is not seeking validation from sinners to make the power of it effectual to them by their decision, by something that they do. No, the gospel comes complete in and of itself. It's a complete message that does not admit of any additions or subtractions. So God broadcasts this message. He declares it as a work that was already done and accepted by him. He uses a lot of past tense language to describe his work so that you don't have any impression that you have things that you have to do to complete that which he studied and finished by himself. So it is a work that he transacted through his son, the second member of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in and through Christ, we are introduced to the doctrine or to the matter of God's righteousness as 
central as critical to the gospel transaction because the gospel is a transaction. God has to transact things for us through a mediator that he has appointed and that mediator person is Christ Jesus and that to say Christ Jesus is the only indispensable person there is to be found in all of the universe. He is the most important person. And the name of Jesus is the most important name that you ever know. Because apart from God, you could never know that name. So we hear this in Romans 3. Let's all go to Romans chapter 3. And we will begin at verse 21. And we'll end at 26 for the development of the background of our message. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. And by now, if you have been listening, you know that I always love to read it from the NET. If not, the King James would be another more faithful translation of this section. Romans 3, 21 to 26, Apostle Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, has been revealed, has been made known, namely, and that is defining what that righteousness of God is. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This righteousness of God is through the faithfulness or the faith of Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who has any advantage. That's what Paul is saying. There is no distinction. Joe Biden is just as in trouble as seemingly the list of persons on planet Earth. There is no distinction. Because God is no respecter of persons. They have all fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24. But, that's the transition, coming out of the problem of falling short of the glory of God. But, they are justified. They are declared as righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that is the merit that is the means by which they are made righteous, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed at his death as the mercy seat, as the propitiation, as the hilasterion accessible through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness. So the things that happened to Christ and the things that he did 
was God demonstrating his righteousness. Because God, in his forbearance, had passed over the sins previously committed. God was waiting for the appearance of his son in the fullness of time. And this was also, verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. The believer lives and that means shall not be condemned not because of their faith but because of Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness is what has delivered you from everything that happened to you because of sin. It was his faithfulness. So apart from the law is saying, apart from your obedience to the law or your obedience to God, there is a righteousness. A righteousness of God that has been revealed. That you do not work for. That you do not do anything to get. But is revealed and has been revealed and has been freely given. A righteousness witnessed by the law and the prophets, which means by the whole Old Testament testimony. The law and the prophets are witnesses of the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is first and foremost the person of Christ. Because it is of him that the law and the prophets testified of, as he said in John 5.39, you read the scriptures because you read the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. So Christ is first and foremost the righteousness of God. He came as the righteousness of God by whose obedience unto death God is satisfied in his dealings with sinners. Because of Christ, God is satisfied. He has a just way to deal with sinners and bring them into his blessing. Because the death of this Christ was the propitiation, it was the satisfaction, it was the justification of the sins of the people. And by him alone, and his death, is God able to be just and justify sinners without violating his own righteousness. But I want to draw you again to the statement that Paul made 
that this righteousness is said to be by the faithfulness of Christ. And that is another way to say by his obedience to God. And if this righteousness, sorry, and if this righteousness is by his faith or faithfulness, then that automatically excludes your faith and mine as the means of being righteous. We are not made righteous by our faith. We are made righteous by the faith of another, by the faithfulness of another. The means of righteousness, beloved, hear me someone, is Christ and the cross. The means of righteousness is Christ and his death on the cross. We should get our language and theology right so that we do not cause unnecessary confusion. Gospel preaching, as I am doing, is not the means that gives you righteousness. It is the declaration of the means. It is the declaration of the righteousness accomplished already and given. And what that death of Christ accomplished for us. I am a news reader. Gospel preaching is news reading. I'm news, I'm a news reader having gotten the whole script from God as he has declared it and recorded it for us in the Bible. I'm just a news reader. I do not cause anything. <laughs> but this matter of the faithfulness of Christ is surprisingly and unfortunately fought against, is belittled by professed sovereign grace preachers and believers. Why? So that they give prominence to their own faith in the gospel transaction so that they give prominence to your act of believing as what causes righteousness to be given and will not make peace with that. Christ must have the preeminence in all things. That's the theology of Paul, that he may have the preeminence. Christ must have the preeminence, his faith. His faithfulness. So by this faithfulness of Christ is the righteousness of God accomplished and given. And this righteousness of God finds its way in the possession of sinners like you and I by way of imputation. This righteousness is freely given 
In other words, it is given without any condition met in those who are the redeemed because all the conditions that were required of them were met, were fulfilled to the T in the Christ who stood for them as their surety and representative. And if the righteousness is freely given, that is, given without cause, then it means that your faith is not what activates the imputation of it to your account. It was given regardless of you, independent of you. So there's nothing that Katie can do to get away from it. It's something that was imposed on her. She can't undo it. She can try, but I wish her the best of luck. So the appearance of Christ is what initiated the imputation of your sin to him. And him making satisfaction for it by his own obedience. In other words, clearing the sin debt that you owed. He cleared it. He made it good. So by imputation, Christ Jesus, the sinless one, was made guilty of our sins. All the sins of the elect were accounted to him. And he was made legally liable by God and worthy of death and worthy of the condemnation that those sins attracted and deserved. But that transaction also had a side B to it. A lot of people now, because we don't have the vinyl records anymore, they don't understand the aspect of the side B of a record. <laughs> you have the side A, and on the side B you have the instrumental version, or you have some remixed version of the song. So the matter of imputation has a side B to it. It has a flip side to it, which is the imputation of the righteousness that had been accomplished by his death to all those that he represented. So side A, you have the imputation of sin to Christ. Side B, you have the imputation of righteousness to all those that Christ represented. So, Christ Jesus did not die to build an Amazon warehouse of righteousness which awaits the activation by your faith and repentance for orders of righteousness to be filled and delivered to your account, which is the most prevalent, albeit false view of salvation in many churches. They say Jesus died but he didn't justify anyone. 
So he has this big warehouse of righteousness that you have to fill your own order by believing, by coming to Christ. Then God gives you that righteousness. Then he sends the truck full of righteousness to your address. No, that's not true. That's not the correct way to understand it. Why? Because that's not how the matter of salvation works. That's not how it works. That's not how God legally determined it to work. The gospel works by way of legal representation. And that is by substitution and suretyship. In other words, the person who is elected to stand on behalf of the people that he has to serve is put in union with them. He's put in union with those that he represents. Thus, once the representative person makes good on the debt, they make full payment of the debt on all that which is owed, the matter is also simultaneously settled in the accounts of those that he represented. Once the account is settled with Christ, that account is also settled for Sean. Because the account that Christ is settling is not his account. It is Sean's account. But he is representing him in the matter of the transaction. So as far as God is concerned, the moment that the debt is paid, Sean is also discharged of any, any arrears that he may have owed. And thus he is justified. And the operative term here is imputation, which means a reckoning an accounting of something, whether good or bad, to one's account. The imputation of Adam's sin to us was bad. <laughs> because it resulted in condemnation. The imputation of sin to Christ was bad. It resulted in him dying on the cross. But there's also the good side of the imputation, which is of his righteousness to us. Yes, imputation and justification are not the same thing. I hear some people say that in an attempt to play some gymnastics with the matter of what Christ accomplished. They'll say, oh, yes, imputation and justification are different things. Therefore, imputation can happen today and then justification happen 2,000 years from now. That's false. <laughs> One implies the other and follows the other. As the flipping of 
or flipping on of a switch, of a light switch, is not the light. But the light immediately follows where the switch has been flipped on. They go together. But one thing must precede the other. So if sin is imputed, then the person to whom it was imputed becomes guilty at the time of imputation. And if sin is paid, the flip side, the person or persons who owed the debt are immediately justified from that debt. So those who claim that Jesus redeemed but did not justify are telling an incomplete story. They are telling an incomplete story. It is impossible to redeem and not justify in the same gospel transaction because redemption in the gospel sense is always unto justification. It is always unto freedom. If a ransom payment is made, the agreed ransom payment is made to some drug warlord, two million, three, five million dollars, they set free the person that they had in their captivity. So freedom automatically happens as soon as the check clears. So if you redeem a thing in the gospel sense, you immediately set free that which was under captivity. Because Jesus himself said he came to set the captives free. And he gave, he would give his life as a ransom for many. So you can't tell me that Jesus gave his life but went back to the Father without setting the captives free. I don't agree with that. And to set the captives free is another way to say, to justify them. <laughs> so this is how Abraham and David found blessing in God's sight. It was not because of their righteousness or their works, but in God not imputing their sin to them. David and Abraham were given ex exhibits for us. They were not condemned, not because they were better than the rest, but because God was pleased to have Christ to stand for them in the fullness of time. So we have here the not because, but because. They were not righteous because, but because. <laughs> not because of their goodness, but because of God's faithfulness in Christ. God not imputing. And if you and I should not be condemned, it is not because we have repented of sin. 
but because God was pleased to not impute our sins to us. And this was already decided by him, that he would not impute our sins to us. And it was accomplished by Christ. Which thing God given faith evidences. God given faith evidences your standing before him. That's God's way of communicating how he sees you. That's what faith does. It does not cause things. It causes you to see things. To have an understanding of the invisible spiritual realities of how the God of creation sees you. And if God does not impute your sin to you, it means he imputed it to someone. Because sin by its nature must be paid by someone, either you or God appointing someone to make payment. God is a more efficient debt collector than Uncle Sam and the IRS. <laughs> Every sin must be paid for. So Apostle Paul labored again this doctrine with the example of Abraham and his wife Sarah and how God came and blessed them when they could not do anything for themselves by way of having a child. And this being a picture of the spiritual realities of how God works to bless a sinner who cannot do anything for themselves. And Paul said, as we have learned, just as the womb of Sarah was old and dead and could not conceive, and yet God made it fruitful by his own power, in his own time, through his promise, so all who should be saved, working from the lesser to the greater, the womb of Sarah just being a shadow of the good things. This is just a shadow. And so working from the lesser of things to the greater spiritual things, all who should be saved are spiritually found in that state of spiritual deadness as was Sarah's womb and only are made alive by the God who makes the dead alive. And that you say, salvation is a promise made in Christ to the dead whom God makes alive 
by his power, even the power of the cross, because that's where we were begotten to life from condemnation to the life of Christ. The cross is the event that divided condemnation from justification. It is at the cross that the transition happened, that the New Testament was ushered in the blood of Christ, that the inheritance was given because the death of the testator had been proven. So the death of the testator is what kicks in the distribution clause of whatever is written in the inheritance. We have spoken to this matter before. So it is the God who makes the dead alive, who also in regeneration has made us alive. Lazarus, come forth. James, come forth. We were made spiritually alive by a divine command. God has to speak. He has to issue the demand, the command of let there be light in this darkness. So God is he who quickens us and makes us alive that we may behold all these things of our salvation. So, everything said. We are actually working away from Romans 1 to 5. <laughs> so everything said. Salvation is by God's promise. In other words, it is by God's decree. It is something that he always determined to do. And that means it is by God's grace alone, which means it is by God's doing alone. And that means it is by Christ's doing alone, which implies that Christ is God. <laughs> but many say God's grace in salvation who on close inspection do not mean it or do not understand what it actually means or imply. By grace, they mean God makes it available. But through your knowledge of it and through your repentance, and stopping doing some sins, you become righteous. Through some diligent study of the doctrines, you then graduate or come to some threshold of knowledge by which God then says, okay, I think. Ella has some understanding now. Let me impute righteousness to her. And that, my friends, is a works gospel. <laughs> that may be beautifully traced in sovereign grace language. 
So you have to learn to listen carefully. Learn to listen carefully. Because if you attach any conditions to grace, then salvation ceases to be of grace, as Paul would say later in Romans 11, but of works. And if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. You can't mix them. So Jesus was given over to death because of our trespasses and was raised as proof of our completed justification. I'm going to expand it this way for your understanding. If you pay for your groceries, you go to the store and you buy your groceries, you get a receipt as proof not just of payment, but of transfer of ownership from the store to you. According to the law of contract or the law of purchase, there is a law that deals with all these things. When you swipe your card, you're actually entering into a contract. The store is required to surrender title to the goods that you've paid for. You own them now. You can put them in the plastic bag and walk out and the loss prevention officer will not stop you. Now they have these colorful ways to describe <laughs> um, some of these job positions. A loss prevention officer. I'm going to be looking for that job too. <laughs> Lost prevention officer will not stop you. That's the security guy at the door. So there is an exchange. That's my point. There's payment and transfer of ownership. So the death of Christ paid for the sins, it made the purchase. And the resurrection of Christ proved completion of payment and transfer of ownership and our justification from all our sins. So the evidence of your acceptance before God is not in a constant introspection of what sins you have stopped doing because the sins that you stopped doing, they have a tendency of coming back. You are capable of falling back into them. But Christ Jesus with his transaction shall not ever die again. This other transaction shall never be repeated. As Paul says in Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. It was done and done and never to be repeated. So what then? What then? The answer to that is this was all introduction. 
This was all introduction. Because we have to understand what I have said to have a clearer understanding of Romans 5. So we are now in Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, <laughs> so therefore is a culmination of all the arguments that Paul has been making from chapter 1 to 4. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been justified. We have been declared as righteous. Not by our works of the law, our obedience, but by faith. Paul is making a statement of fact and making a distinction because he has some law mongers in his audience and is telling them that we have been justified not by the works of the law but by faith. But on seeing that expression justified by faith many without considering the context of the conversation will run away with it and say see it is our faith that is in reference to justification and the condition of imputation of righteousness. Thus, they reason all the elect were condemned until they believed. That's not what Paul is saying. Romans 5 is a continuation of the discussion of salvation from chapters 1 to 4 of Romans. And I have a question. How could the elect remain condemned when the payment was made for them already? that they are now seeking to be justified by their own act of believing 2,000 years later. That is an anti-gospel statement and way of thinking. Why? Because you can't continue to owe a debt that has been paid. It is unjust to continue to owe a debt that was paid for you. So preachers need to really teach the matter of union and representation because that is what is lacking or absent in their proclamation of the gospel. They remove Christ from the matter of your justification, your union with him and his representation of you. Justification by faith is speaking to justification by Christ. It is not speaking to justification by your own faith. And it is saying 
justified by the righteousness of the faith of Christ as against justification by the works of the law. The righteousness of God, which is the righteousness of Christ in faithfulness to God. Because Christ alone has been faithful to God. Christ's faithfulness to God in fulfilling the terms of the covenant of our redemption by his death. Christ is he who was bound legally in the courtroom of God to perform all the terms of your salvation. So Paul says we have been justified. Past tense. Pay attention to that. Because it is an act that happened already when God judged all the elect in Christ. All the elect were judged one time in the one transaction. In the one event of the cross. And that is the emphasis of the book of Hebrews of the book of Hebrews, the oneness of Christ and the fact that by his offering of himself, he perfected for all time the sanctified so that the act of his death shall never ever be repeated because it was effectual. He did what it was supposed to do. So Paul says, again, we've been justified. But what is the result of that? How is the justified believer supposed to make of that transaction here and now? Paul says, the believer. And that is all the elect of all time have not only been acquitted, justified from all their sins, as who fell short of the glory of God, but also we have peace with God. Not only have we been justified, we now have peace with God. We are the young and the restless. <laughs> So watch that soap. This thing ran for like 500 years. We are the young and the restless. And we could use some peace. The world is in trouble. If you are reading the news. And it could use some peace. And depending on where you are. In life, we see ourselves slowly coming apart, coming unglued because of sin, because of sickness, because of age. There was a time that I used to go to bed at 7 p.m. and wake up at 7 in the morning. It would rain 
thunder and lightning. You could literally steal my bed from me and I would have not, I would not have known. Not anymore. I got bed at 11. I'm up at 12, 15. <laughs> we have conflict within and without. We have anxiety about life, about the future. Who's going to take care of us? Anxiety for the children. Not having enough money. Anxiety about the economy. Losing loved ones. Anxiety about the increased confusion in the world around us. Men and women are not getting better. You just see more confusion. And now, everybody has a microphone. (laughs) And they have a keyboard. And they have Facebook. And they're sharing their ideas. Crooked ideas. We could use some good news of real peace and rest. But the peace of Christ that is in the gospel is not as the world gives. Christ, Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be distressed. Neither let it be afraid. One of the best things that I love to hear from Jesus when I read is when he says little children. I love that. I don't know why. (laughs) It misses to me some confidence that he sees me not as smart as I think but as some little child. Like little children. Do not be afraid. So the gospel that Paul preached the gospel of Christ is the gospel of peace, of declaring a peace that was already made. And this is why I ask and say, preachers do not just hide behind terms that have not been explained, like Jesus accomplished redemption. Explain what that means. Because there's a therefore that comes from that. Tell us what it is that he actually accomplished. Because salvation is such a big and broad umbrella term. But where this peace implies what? Implies there is reconciliation. There is a seizing of hostilities. And this was not some truce, some peace treaty between warring parties so that they can have two weeks or a week to celebrate the Ramadan. This is a permanent state of affairs with God. 
it has been ratified, this peace treaty has been ratified by the blood of the Son of God. The death of Christ established a permanent peace treaty between God and his elect. A peace established on God's terms in Christ. So peace means a status of reconciliation. There's no more warring between you and God. God has in Christ reconciled himself. He has reconciled you to himself. You were not invited to the meeting. You were not there. But you had a representative, Christ Jesus. But where there's reconciliation implies there was once before some unresolved issues. But now the issues have been settled. They have been settled. So we have peace with God. And the idea also is that let us keep rejoicing in that peace with God. Because we have peace with the one being who really matters, who alone has power to trouble us and to destroy us. You cannot have peace if God does not give you peace. We have peace with God. That is God's message. It is a declaration of how things stand here and now for the elect in Christ since Christ was given over to death and has been resurrected. And that peace was not because of your faith and mine, because your faith and mine came later. The peace was by his blood, as Colossians 1 says. Let's go to Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, the fullness of the Godhead. And by him, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So reconciliation and peace go together, just as imputation and justification go together in the matter of our salvation. Where you have peace, you have reconciliation. And what mediates that is the person of Christ and his blood. That's what made peace with God. And this peace is more than your general well-being or feeling. Like people say, oh, I'm at peace with myself. 
I made peace with myself. Like, no, you have no blood with which to make peace. <laughs> the dimensions in view are much bigger. They are salvific. This is a peace that has been brought about from a situation in which we were ungodly sinners and enemies with God, as Paul would expand in the verses to come. That's the situation. Ungodly people, sinners without strength to please God. And so, the peace with God is the reconciliation that has been accomplished for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the title of the person who accomplished your peace. And it is through Christ Jesus alone that we have been brought into this relationship of peace with God. And that to say, apart from Christ, there's no such thing as peace. But those who have been reconciled to God are not counted among the wicked. As the Bible says, there's no peace for the wicked, right? There's no peace for the wicked. And you think, man, I sinned yesterday. Am I not part of the crowd of the wicked? The wicked are those who have not been reconciled to God by Christ. So there's no peace for the wicked. But we have peace with God because of the blood of Christ. So the matter of Christ mediating. You see, all the words that I say are very carefully selected. The matter of Christ mediating justification and reconciliation and the peace is very important in Romans 5 teaching. Actually, it's a recurrent theme all the way to Romans chapter 8. Whatever God does for the sinner, is in or through Christ. So you're going to hear Paul in the culmination of his argument in Romans 8 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That in, as simple as it sounds, even Ayana can spell it, is one of the most important operative words in the gospel, in Christ, in the mediation of Christ. And this means if we do not understand how God justifies sinners, we may fail to experience the peace that we should have from the gospel, especially when we fall back into sin, which is going to happen between now and death, something is going to come back and mess you up. And we may think that we have lost our salvation or God has changed his peace treaty, <laughs> changed his mind, and we 
have to try, like, in the thinking of the prodigal son, who thought to himself, well, let me go back to my father and renegotiate my standing with him and renegotiate my way back into the father's love. So he prepared his sermon. He prepared his speech, if you go read the story. He prepared a speech that he never got to read because the father discounted it. He said, oh, he is my son. He was lost. He's found. Let me throw a big party for him. Yeah, let's celebrate. My son has been found. So you don't have to go and renegotiate your standing before God because sonship cannot be lost. That's the point. You cannot lose your status before God. These things are very important. So Paul continues and says, verse 2, you see why I said I could not go past verse 3? <laughs> Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So in Christ, as the agent and the cause of our peace with God, we have peace with God. And in Christ, we have access by faith into this grace, not just grace, but this grace in which we stand. What does Paul mean by access? The Greek word translated access. I don't know if I pronounced this correctly. It's prosagogen. You don't have to remember it. But it means the privilege of approach to a person of high rank. The privileged approach to a person of high rank. Paul uses it in Ephesians 2.18 and Ephesians 3.12 and says, For through him, that is through Christ, we have access by one spirit to the Father, the Father of high rank. In Ephesians 3.12, he says, In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So that's what Christ has done for us. He has given us access to a place where we should not have access. That naturally we do not have clearance. If you're working for the government, you need clearance. And there are different security clearance levels. And the closer you get to the, to the president, the highest of clearances you need to have. And we have the highest clearance to reach God himself by Christ. That's what Paul is saying. <laughs> God trusts us now. Not that we will do anything to him. <laughs> but you get the flow. 
So in Christ alone, we have the privilege of approach to God, who naturally is unapproachable. But we approach him now boldly through Christ and with confidence and without shame of being thrown out. Because if you go to a place where you have not been invited, and they say, okay, how did you get in here? Let's see your pass. <laughs> Who did you come with? Usually, if you came with someone, that helps sometimes. Oh, I came with Sean. Oh, okay. You came with Sean. You came with a better mediator. That is why in the story of Joseph and his brothers, we are told that when the brothers went back to Jacob, to the father, to report that Simeon had been taken into custody by this man in Egypt, they said, you should bring Benjamin with you. And the man said, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. You won't have access to me unless your brother Benjamin the surety is with you. That is Christ Jesus. You can only see the face of God if you are in the company of Christ. You will not see my face. So through Christ, we have the privileged access to God. Unfettered access to God. And that means we do not need any other mediator to access the presence of God or to make peace for us with God. That is why the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was rent in two from top to bottom because before nobody had access into the presence of God except the high priest anointed with oil and even then they would only go there once a year with the blood of animals but now in Christ we have a permanent access into the presence of God. And so the whole Roman Catholic construction of Mariology and the intercession of the dead saints on your behalf does not hold water, given that understanding. Not only that, trying to access God through our works is also discounted and frowned upon as a racket by this very truth. Access has been granted only one way and there's only one key combination that grants and has granted that access and it is Christ Jesus. So you see, Christ is just too important. But some informed commentators say access by faith, that is in verse 2, is not found in the best Greek manuscripts. 
So according to the best Greek manuscripts, verse 2 would read this way. Through whom also we have access into this grace in which we stand. And I would not have any problems with that. It sounds faithful to me in the context of everything that we know about Christ alone being the mediator between God and man. It's not your faith plus Christ that gives you access. It is Christ who gives you access. Greek is not my specialty, but Christ is. (laughs) But I guess you understand my point. So in Christ we have access into into this grace in which we stand. So Paul also is very careful with his choice of words because he's communicating some serious things. He says, in this grace in which we stand, believers are the fallen in Adam. So naturally we have no standing with God. But Paul says, now with Christ they have a standing. How do the fallen stand? They stand by grace alone. They stand not by behavior modification. They have a standing by grace alone. Romans 3.24 This is the standing. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is how we stand. Justified. Freely. Anyone who has been justified freely has a standing with God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is the merit by which we stand. That's what causes you to stand before God. So to be justified by his grace is another way of saying justified by God's own doing. And everyone who has a standing with God is a righteous man or woman this morning no matter what is happening to them. And they cannot fall ever again from this standing because it is impossible to fall again. But this grace is not an unfailing grace. It is a faithful grace in Christ Jesus. So even this day, knowing your many sins, the majority of which you don't know, (laughs) the old ones and the new ones to come, and those nagging sins that that won't go away in spite of the many resolutions to do better in 2023. I had my resolutions to be a better person in 2023 and 28 days into 2023, I think I need 2024. 
<laughs> I'm ready for 2024. God says you have a standing in Christ. You don't need a New Year's resolution to improve your standing. A standing that cannot be taken away from you. But not only do we have a standing with God by His grace in Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. As who had fallen short of the glory of God. See the play of words. We had fallen short of the glory of God. Now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we should rejoice in our future entrance and experience of it. So rejoice is the same word translated as exalt or boast. So Paul is purposeful to say, instead of boasting in our works of righteousness as he forbade in Romans 4, forbidden by the gospel, he says, in Christ we have an acceptable way to boast. There is an acceptable way to boasting. And it is in Christ. We boast in hope of the glory of God. We are joyfully confident of the hope that is in the future. The hope that is eschatological. So Paul is opening up the eschatological aspect of our salvation. And saying there is a glory to come that you should look to that is in the distance. But why boast in the hope of the glory of God that is future to us? Because of our present day reality and frustration with this life and remaining sin. Sin does frustrate us daily. Even, as I said, with a commitment or resolution to do better. Some sin we enjoy, some sin we don't like. And it seems the more we resolve to overcome it, the more we feel like we are hitting our heads against the wall. The harder they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> but our failures are not the end of the story. They are anticipated by God in our walk. There's better to come the hope of God's glory. Verse 3, Romans 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Okay, Paul, where are we going now? How did we get from boasting in the future hope of God's glory to now boasting in tribulations, glory in tribulations. What is happening? Because Paul has just said to his audience, we have peace with God. And you would think that peace with God 
would remove any tribulations of life. So there are objections and good ones to be made and to be answered. Why then do the redeemed continue to suffer in this world? And Paul's answer is the gospel. Persecutions, sickness, job loss, family loss, disappointments, frustrations. Paul, are these blessings that you talk of real? Given our present predicament of, of people losing their loved ones to death, to suicides. I have a friend of mine who has a friend who just lost his son. Lost his son to suicide. High school graduate. And she has no answer to... She's a Christian. The mother, the both parents are from what I had. But they have no answer to why God would do that. And she says, I always prayed for my children from when they were born. Prayed every day that God would keep them. And then suddenly he commits suicide. And he happened to be one of the best students in his school. So they are grappling with God's love and God's sovereignty and their faith also. How do you answer that? Do you even have an answer to such things? And in my conversation with her on Friday, I said to her, don't try to make a lot of theology in the midst of trouble. And I took her to the book of Job. And Job says somewhere that what I was afraid of has happened to me. And what was he afraid of? It was not his health. He was afraid that something would happen to his children. And when Job's friends came, the three friends of Job came, I believe they spent like a whole week and they didn't say a thing. And I said to her, you don't have to say a whole lot of things. There is some lesson to be learned from Job's friends at this point before God comes and says you and mocks them for their bad theology. I said, the longer you are quiet in this season, the better. Just be there for her. Just tell her you love her and pack it there. The theology is yet to be revealed. God is the one who's going to give the theological explanations of his sovereignty and give her the understanding of why things have happened. So this is where the believer is, having heard of their reconciliation, of their justification, of their peace with God, and then things like this happen. What do we do with that, Paul? So Paul has given the future hope of the glory of God and put it in the distance for the believer to look at as they deal with their present frustrations. So the distance has a lot of light compared to the experience of their life here and now. There's a lot 
or frustrations that put bad taste in God's people, puts darkness around them. But Paul says, tribulations are part of the Sajan experience. And this gospel and its blessing is actually what you need to deal with the tribulations. So your problems in this world do not overthrow the blessings that you possess in Christ. See that Paul was not a prosperity gospel preacher. (laughs) He was not your best life now preacher. He says because of your justified state, your reconciled state, the peace that you have with God, you're standing by grace. You have the fuel to glory even in the tribulations that you go through in this world. That is your power to glory, to power you through the trials. And the tribulations are not random. They are what God uses to squeeze the juice out of you that you may see your hope and life only in Christ in the distance. <laughs> There's a purpose for the tribulations. Here, this verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us. So there is a cascade of qualities that are produced in the redeemed by the tribulations. By the pressing. Tribulation means pressing, putting pressure. And that means God is behind the tribulations. And the tribulations are measured for each one. And they have their seasons that they are introduced. And will run as long as God sees fit to produce these things in his people. So the sufferings are not random. Even our frustrations with sin are not random. They do not produce weakness in the redeemed. They do not produce hopelessness in the redeemed as may have been expected. Why? Because God was up the redeemed with his one hand to the fire, even as he is pressing them with the other to cool off the fire. (laughs) So the tribulations are the gymnasium that God uses to win us of the world, to mature us and increase 
our anticipation of the glory of Christ. And then you hear more of the testimony of people saying, I'm done with this life. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Lord, take me. Stop praying for me. I want to die. <laughs> Pay attention to the word that I used. Increase our anticipation of the glory of Christ. And increase our sight of the spiritual realities though in the distant future. I have a lot of things to say. But I haven't even barely scratched the things that we have to say around verse 3. So we expound more of that in the next message. But for now, this is what we've done. We've labored to show you the most pressing matter for the sinner. And it is their justification. I then showed you how God has determined to settle or transact the matter. And it is by the way of Christ Jesus and by way of his faithfulness, a way that is apart from our own obedience and by way of the imputation of his righteousness accomplished by his death to the end that none should boast before God. And this righteousness being imputed, given, reckoned freely to all who are in him, who are called the elect, of which faith attests or gives evidence of possession. Faith gives evidence of possession of all these things, but is not the cause or grounds of imputation. Christ is the grounds and cause of imputation. So all the redeemed exist now in this state of reconciliation with God. They are justified from all things that the law of Moses could not justify them. They are justified from every sin that they'll ever do in their experience of this life. So all this has been accomplished by the death of Christ who made peace by his blood. And this peace is not disturbed by the tribulations and the frustrations, the sicknesses and things that will come our way, but is rather strengthened in the hope of the participation. That's another important word, participation in the future glory of Christ because all the elect shall participate in the future glory of Christ as Jesus prayed in John 17 and said, Father, I want all these that you gave me to come and behold how wonderful I am. <laughs> and behold the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And that prayer was answered. So 
based on that prayer, you're coming. You're going to have to behold it. So rejoice now that we have peace with God and that in Christ we have a confident access to the privileged thrice holy God and shall not be ashamed and shall not be rejected. We shall not be rejected. There's no sin of yours that Christ will bring to remembrance in your conversation with him. He doesn't play games like that. The Bible says, and their sins I remember no more, so they don't come in the conversation. So in Christ we have a standing in this grace and so go through your life and its frustrations and its pain, not as defeated, hopeless people, but with joy and expectation because your story ends very well. And that's God's message. We're done. God be praised. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for all these things, wonderful things that you have revealed to the babes and the suckling, things hidden from the wise and the prudent. We thank you for the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his work, the beauty of the blessing, the beauty of the hope that we have in him. And even now, we are troubled on every side because of the flesh, because of sin, because of the devil even. But we know we have a sure victory. We have of your people, even in this season, we are battling sickness, weakness of the body, weakness because of sin. We pray for strength for them, for encouragement for them to say, Death has no power over them. Even though they may die, they will live, as Jesus said to the sisters of Lazarus in John 11. We thank you that we are reconciled and justified. We thank you that we have peace with you now. Cause us to rejoice in this hope. Cause us to see that we are those who have a standing with God because of Christ. We honor you, glorify you. In all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. Christ has loved you with an everlasting life and everlasting love. We'll talk again, God willing, be praying for me for strength. I have also many frustrations of the flesh. (laughs) So I could use this message as does everybody. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week ahead. God be praised. Amen.